Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this. Maybe you have, or maybe it's just an experience that you have had or have seen happen. But have you noticed there's sort of a universal resistance to sort of owning responsibility for our shortcomings? Have you seen this? There's sort of this like universal resistance to responsibility for our, taking responsibility for our own failures, for our own brokenness, for the way that we hurt other people. Like, this is not just like non-Christian versus Christian. This is everybody. Like, we all have this sort of an inherent, like, not, not willingness or unwillingness to, to own responsibility for the, for the things that, that we're responsible for. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it. Like, for many of us, the instant reaction when we're wrong is to not own it, right? Like, that, as soon as something happens, the thought goes through your mind of, how can I get out of this, Right? Have you had that thought internally? Anybody willing to own that one? You know, the first thought that I always have, the way this plays out in me, is I go, how can I fix this before anyone knows, right? So that nobody will know, right? But if we can't do that, if we don't sort of get it situated before people know, we start to, you know, like the political answer anymore is just to deny that it happened, right? No, you're wrong. It didn't happen. I didn't do that. You're wrong, But if we can't get that one, we can't just sort of deny it. We try to justify. Well, I did it because, and certainly if you understand why I did it, it'll make sense, and then I'll be okay, right? Uh, And so we justify it. Or if we can't justify it, we shift blame to somebody else, right? Well, that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't, right? You wouldn't have hit the car had you not parked it so close, right? It's not my fault. It's your fault. We try to shift blame. And only as a last resort, when our back's against the wall and there's no other option, we say, well, yeah, that's my fault. I did that. But even, I don't know if you've paid attention, recent political and church scandals are sort of an indication. We don't even take responsibility for the whole thing, right? We'll take responsibility. Well, yes, I did do this, but... This other person had a bigger role, right? Or we're going to take everyone else down because if I'm going down, you're going down too, right? Have you seen this? Is this just my experience or is this yours as well? Right? It's not just adults though. Any of you who have kids have watched this, right? Have you ever watched a kid do something and we go, did you do that? No. Right? Like you've seen this, right? If you don't have kids, maybe not, but like if you have kids, like I can't tell you how maddening it is to have your kid lie in your face and go, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. I watched you do it. What do you mean it wasn't you? Right? I'll tell you a story. When I was a kid, um, my brother and I and my my dad were all in the basement. We had this finished basement and the TV and we had a pool table and all this stuff, right? So we're in the basement and my dad's watching TV and my brother and I, and I've been holding this coin. I wish I had a coin I'd show you. You know, like I was holding a nickel like this, right? And I thought it was so cool that I could hold the nickel in the curvature of my finger. So my brother and I are going to go upstairs and I went like this, threw it behind my back. Dad's not paying attention, hits him square in the head. And he, who did that? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? Like, it's just my brother and I. It's not like nickels just come falling out of the sky. 
right? But I was like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Somebody threw this nickel at me. I don't know. I don't know. One of you needs to own up to it. Fess up. And, you know, and so I resisted. So my dad sent us both to our rooms, which was our same room. And, <laughs> and this dialogue happened in our bedroom. It's like, I didn't do it. And my brother's like, well, I didn't do it. And I'm like, I don't know who did it then. And this, right, there's this sort of like back and forth thing. And I don't know what I thought. Like, like if, I, if I thought it would eventually just go away. Like, oh, we just don't know where the nickel came from, right? So I lasted for hours, like hours. We're sitting in the bedroom. My dad kept coming up trying to give us the opportunity. And finally, he was like, nobody's going to get in trouble. I just want to know who did it. Finally, I did it. It was me. Right? So that was, that was the thing, right? For hours. I mean, nickels don't just randomly hit people, at least not that I've had, Right? But what is it with our, like, sort of, like, universal, like, resistance to owning responsibility for our own sin, for our own brokenness, for our own failures? What is it about that? And that's a universal human condition, right? It's Christians and non-Christians. It's adults and kids. It's everyone. Why do we resist taking responsibility? And how should we live? Like, what should this look like? We began this series last week through the book of 1 John that we're calling Love and Truth. And before I jump too far into the passage, how many of you, I gave you all a challenge last week, read all the way through 1 John in one sitting once a week. How many of you have done that? All right, a handful of you. Cool. If you have not, it's not too late. Here's why I'm asking you to do that. If you don't have a spiritual discipline to press into for the summer, that you might be shaped into a different kind of person, one that looks more like Jesus... I would invite you to commit to reading through 1 John cover to cover. And I say cover to cover, it's five chapters, it's not that long. It will take you 10 minutes, 20 if you're slow. How many, you, Chris, you said you read it, how long did it take you? 15, perfect. Anybody else? Anybody take more than 20 minutes? More than 20, how long? Okay, well, hey, that's, that's good, that's good. Notes, great. All right, anybody who didn't take notes took more than 20 minutes? Okay, great. What, I would just encourage you to do this. Here's why I'm asking you to do that. Most of the time we read the Bible like a fortune cookie, don't we? We pop it open, we pull the thing out, we get the one verse, and we're like, that'll work. That's good. That's perfect. But do you know most of these things are, not most, they all are written as like a long writing. So verses only make sense in the context in which they were written. And what you will find if you read 1 John, I mean, there's 10 more weeks in this series if you count today, Okay. So that means you'll read it 10 more times. The first time you read it, you'll see some things. Brittany, the, the notes that you took the first time will be different than the notes that you take the 10th time and the 11th time. And here's why. Because Scripture will continually help you, inter it will interpret itself. You, what you'll find is connections between things that you didn't see the first time. So just encourage you to do that, okay? Perfect, great. <clears throat> so we begin this series, and what I told you is that this is this is a writing from uh, John the Apostle. And John the Apostle is writing this. It, it gets billed as a letter. It's not exactly a letter. It's more like a sermon in written form. And he's addressing this church split that happened. And wh what he's doing is he's writing to this remaining church. It's a group of house churches. <clears throat> and what he's saying is he's trying to encourage and build a foundation with the remaining house churches 
while at the same time coming against the false teaching of those who left. And I said last week that this is sort of a beginning and early stages form of Gnosticism. And uh, someone asked me, uh, and I forget who it was that asked me, like, what does this look like? Is there more information on this? <clears throat> you can look, uh, look up, you can Google the, the document Against Heresies. You can buy, it's a book by the early church father, Irenaeus. If you're curious about more of what they were combating. Now, Irenaeus wrote about 100 years after John. So 1 John represents sort of the baby form of this belief. A hundred years later, you see what it looks like sort of in full-grown form. So you can buy that on Amazon. You can get it free in a PDF document. My preference is for free um, because I'm trying to save money. So if you're curious about that, you can, you can look it up. Uh, last week, we talked about how John says that all Christian fellowship is centered on Jesus, that there's no Christian fellowship centered on something else. So Christian fellowship is based entirely on Jesus. Today, what we're going to look at is what John has to say about sin within the body of believers. And I'm calling today's message, Can We Be Real for a Minute? Can we be real for a minute? Let's pray and then we're going to look at scripture. And so Lord, I do just welcome you to come. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. Father, we desire to draw near to you. And so would you reveal yourself in this word? Lord, would you unhook false associations and misunderstandings that we've made about sin and what that looks like? God, would you give us a clear picture? I pray that you would set us free today by your word. Would you enable me, Lord, to speak as I should? Fill my mouth with your words. And Holy Spirit, put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at 1 John with me. 1 John. We're going to look at chapter 1. And beginning in verse 5. And here's what we read. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him... And yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I told you that the context John is writing into is of a church that, that has just split, and if you don't understand this as the sort of broad context for why John is writing, you get confused because it looks like John is saying conflicting things here, right? It looks like John is saying, everybody sins, but Christians shouldn't sin, 
right? Doesn't it look like he's saying conflicting things? If you don't understand the context that he's writing, you'll be confused because it'll look like John is just sort of crazy, like his, he's all over the place. But so he's trying to do two things at the same time. He's trying to ground those who remain in the church in the truth of the gospel. And at the same time, he's trying to combat the false teaching of the heretics who left. So he's trying to do two things at the same time. And we'll get into like sort of the, the, what happened with the people who left in a couple weeks. But those who left, left and claimed that because of the, the anointing of the Spirit, they had a special revelation from God that they now no longer needed to have a relationship with Jesus. It wasn't necessary. In fact, Jesus was kind of like a weak guy because he got killed. We don't really believe. So it believes that the spiritual is above the physical. And it, like I said, it was an early form of Gnosticism. And so John, in this passage of Scripture, he, he aims three attacks at, at the, the false teaching. And they're marked by this phrase, if we claim. And so John is making a case against all of the people who claim these things. And so verse 6 says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, from these statements, you can begin to see the substance of the teaching of the false teachers, that they claim to be sinless. They claimed uh, this, this idea that, that they're not sinful because the Spirit gave them special revelation and by the way, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. And so you can do whatever and it's not sin. And this is sort of the, the teaching. And so John, like I said last week, was, was, he's very much talking about the physicality of human existence. Very much it's important to know that we're not just spiritual beings, that our goal of Christian life is not to escape the spiritual to some disembodied, or escape the physical to some disembodied spiritual existence. But that Christian faith is a fully embodied existence. That's, that faith in, in Jesus is an embodied faith. And so in essence, these teachers have been saying, well, we have fellowship with God. And we don't need Jesus. We have, fellow, we have special revelation. We have this super secret knowledge. This special, the Spirit has spoken to us this special thing. And if you're in our special club, you also don't need Jesus. This is the false teaching that John is dealing with. And the important thing about this is bits of this show up in 21st century Christianity. Especially, I, I was talking to Sarah last week a little bit. <clears throat> in charismatic circles, if you fall off the end of charismatic practice, the falling off the end becomes Gnostic. The Spirit spoke something to me that the Bible doesn't say. And it's okay, because I heard it from the Spirit, and of course, that's the most important thing. So if you don't understand this, one of two things happens. You just reject all of the Holy Spirit stuff entirely, which is not biblical. Or you get tricked into all of these crazy cycles of belief that just don't make sense. They're not at all grounded in Scripture. They're just the super secret revelation that I have. And if you're a super secret special person, you also will have. But the rest of them, let's just leave them behind, which is what happened with these teachers. 
They left because you all don't have the secret revelation, and we do, so we're out of here. It wasn't like they were kicked out. They chose to go. But this has implications for faith now, and it's important as followers of Jesus to understand that. And this is probably what John has in focus. But then John turns around and lays a foundation. And that's what 1 John really is, is a foundation. He's laying this foundation for the church. And what he says is, the fact that we're aware of our own sin is evidence that we're walking in the light. What he says is, because you know that you're sinful, it's evidence that you're walking in the light. Look again at verse 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And this is the key. If we, have claim, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I said last week that fellowship in a Christian sense is based on Jesus, and this is why. John says that to be in fellowship with God is to be in the presence of inescapable light. In a very same way that as soon as you turn on the light, you see all the flaws, it's the same kind of thing, right? So maybe that's why in church we like to keep the lights dim. You don't want, we don't want you to see the fact that the walls haven't been painted in you know, 40 years, right? As soon as you turn on the lights, like I was going to have Danny turn the light off and, and go, Maybe I'm growing a beard, maybe I'm not, and you all can't remember and you can't tell, but I didn't do that. Would have been cool, though. <clears throat> but that's what light does. It reveals the flaws. The fact that you actually are aware of your own sinfulness is evidence that you're in the light, at least in some level, because you become aware of the things that are not as they should be. If we actually have fellowship with God, our flaws get revealed. The things that are not as they should be get revealed. And let me take a minute just to, to define <clears throat> what we mean by sinfulness. See, you and I were created to be in perfect relationship with God. And at the same time, be a perfect reflection into the world of what God is like. That's how we were created. That was the way we were created. That's our purpose. Anything short of that is sin. Any way that we live that's not in line with the way we were created is sin. And so then sin is anywhere that's out where the reality is not in alignment with God's design. That's sin. It may manifest in a number of ways, right? There's a lot of ways, a lot of behaviors that we might say, well, that's out of alignment. It may be attitudes that are out of alignment. It may be thoughts that are out of alignment. I'm sure if we were all, if we all had our thoughts projected in a, in a screen on the wall, most of us would disappear forever, wouldn't we? I'd never come back, right? I don't want that. I don't want people to know what I think. Maybe our motivations are out of alignment with God and his design. Any number of ways... But the root is always that something is out of alignment with the way God created it. So when we come into relationship with God, what becomes immediately apparent is how far out of alignment we are. As soon as you come into the light, as soon as you expose yourself to who God is and you begin a relationship, what becomes immediately apparent 
is I'm not like that. This is evidence that you're walking in the light. Some of you are familiar with the Ingle Scale. How many of you are familiar, you've heard this term, the Ingle Scale? It's a, it's a helpful tool created by James Ingle about, it's a graphic representation, I think I have, yeah. It's a graphic representation of the process by which somebody goes from no awareness, if you can't read it, that's okay, from no awareness of God to committed to following Jesus. Down here at minus eight, awareness of a supreme being, but no effective knowledge of the gospel, that's where people start. And some people have, you know, enhanced this and all that. Initial awareness of the gospel. As you get closer to the top, the one I want to key in on is minus three. Minus three is I have not yet given my life to Jesus, and yet I am aware enough of God that I actually have begun to walk in the light, recognizing a personal problem. At this point... We're walking enough in the light to know that I'm not like that. My life doesn't reflect that. I have no be business being in relationship with that. I feel exposed. What am I going to do? And if you go up the scale just a little bit, go to the next one. Decision to act. Minus two. We get to a point where we're like, I have to do something about the fact that I am not like God. Because the light has been shown on me for all my flaws. And I'm fully aware of all of my sinfulness. And for most of us, it stops here, right? Like, we, we end up sort of in this, like, battle, and, and some people make a choice to follow Jesus because we become aware that Jesus is who saves us from our sinfulness. But some of us go, well, if I'm not like that, I'm going to walk away. And you know people, you probably know people who are embattled between this minus two to minus four or five. Just constantly back and forth, it's like, Every time I walk close to God, I become aware that I'm not like him and I don't like that. Constantly back and forth. But the problem when it comes to sinfulness is that most of the time we stop right at the minus three. And we say, when you make your decision to follow Jesus, that's where sinfulness stops. All of you people who don't know Jesus, you're sinful. Once we know Jesus, we've been cleaned. We're not and even if we wouldn't say that, right, nobody's going to stand up and say, well, I'm, I'm not a sinner. I'm not sinful, right? Like we've at least enough heretics have put, been put aside to know that that's not okay. But in our hearts, we believe it. In our hearts, we live in this space of like, well, I know I'm supposed to be perfect. Well, I know I'm supposed to be sinless. But the awareness of your sinfulness is not just for people who have not given their lives to Jesus. In fact, the closer you walk to Jesus, the more aware of really the deep things you are. The more aware you are of your wrong motivations, right? Those are not the immediate ones. The minus three person is just aware that like I'm sleeping with my significant other and now I know that that's not okay. This is wrong behavior. But once you get to the plus one, two, three, and four, the sinfulness looks more like this. I don't like that person. I'll treat them right, but I have judged them for something else. I have a bad motivation. I have a bad thought life. You'll never know it, but I have a really bad thought life. The sinfulness that gets exposed as you are a follower of Jesus is actually the deeper stuff. It's the stuff that everything else is built on. And this, so, so the point here is that not only is the awareness of sinfulness for people who don't yet know Jesus, it's for everyone. 
John presupposes that those inside the church still have sin that they deal with. We still deal with sin. Look at uh, verse 8. John says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. He's not writing this to non-Christians. He's writing it to Christians. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He doesn't say, sin went away when you gave your life to Jesus. In fact, that's what the heretics were saying. Once I had an encounter with God, I no longer sinned. We maybe don't say that, but we live as if that's true. I'm just not a good enough Christian. You know, I really have a hard time because I'm not a good enough Christian, and I know I'm supposed to be better, right? The supposed to, I ought to. And what we're living out of is this belief that somehow we're supposed to be perfect, and the thing that we believe is everyone else is. Because we show up here and we look pretty and nobody looks like they have any problems. Right? That most of us sitting here have problems at home. And if you turn around, don't look at everybody. It, <laughs> but if you turn around and look at everybody around you, what you, would, you wouldn't know it. We all are dealing with sinful issues. Every last one of us here are dealing with sinful issues. But we don't show up here and put it on our face, do we? And so what ends up happening is we end up in this belief that I'm the only one. Right? Isn't that the struggle? I'm the only one. If you went to Saturate last Sunday night, there were 570 people, I think, they sit there. If you went to Saturate last, last week... And you sat outside, and you're aware of your own sinfulness, and you sit in a crowd of 569 other people who you think are all perfect, that's a really isolating thought, isn't it? To be in a crowd and be all alone, that's a terrible thought. But if you understand that every last one of us deals with sin, all of a sudden this idea of fellowship happens, right? Every one of you struggles with some sin at some level. Here's what we tend to do, right? In the, in the church, we do this. Once we've given our lives to Jesus, we don't want to let people actually know who we are. So we just go, I struggle with gossip. Not to mention all of the other. I also struggle with people-pleasing. I also care way more what you think than I care about what God thinks. I also struggle with alcoholism, and I have a porn addiction, and I have all of these things. But I won't tell you that. What I'll say is, man, I'm just... I struggle with gossip, right? We don't want to say we're sinless, so we want to claim some sin, but we're really afraid of what happens if we claim a, what's really true. And here's what happens. If we live into this, what we end up deciding is that we have to hide our sinfulness. I have to pretend like I don't have sin because none of the rest of these people do, or at least I don't think they do. So I have to pretend to the best of my ability, to look like all the rest of these people who are pretending to the best of their ability. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in this weird space where everybody's sitting in a room together and everybody pretends like we're all perfect and all of us are dying inside because we've never opened up about the fact that we have this sinfulness in our lives. Because we believe that the minus threes and below, that's where the sinfulness belongs. So we pretend, right? And all of a sudden, there's a gap. There's a gap between what's real and what everybody sees. 
And here's what happens over time if you allow that gap to grow. Here's what happens. You show up, you hang out with these people, and you're not honest about the things that you're wrestling with for one reason or another. You put it on a, on a show, and the gap grows, and Satan goes, hmm, see, you're not that person. So all of a sudden, you have all this shame, and you, you carry this shame around, and, and so now you have to try even harder because you feel worse, and the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger until who you actually are is not transformed whatsoever, and you're pretending to be something that you're not. Churches are full of people just like this. Maybe this church is full of people just like this. I hope not. Here's what happens in that space. As that gap grows, Satan gets in there, right? Now, don't let the devil get a foothold. Satan gets in the middle of this. Says, You're not that person. That's not who you are. I know who you are. If anybody actually figured out who you were, they'd expose you as a phony and they'd hate you, right? Some of you are like, I know that voice, Right? This is the way that ends up working. And so the gap gets bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden, Satan now has a foothold, and the demonic gets into your life. Starts, like, laying claim to areas of your life because you've allowed that to happen. You've, you've allowed this, like, falsehood to, to exist. So you end up with, like, spiritual things like envy. You find yourself envying the spirituality of someone else, Right? You find yourself with, with comparison, right? I'm constantly comparing myself with someone else. We end up with, well, a spirit of religion. It's trying to be this spiritual existence that we're not. And pretending in our own power to be something that we're not. And once that gets a hold of you, it becomes really hard to ever become who God designed you to be. The gap sort of is forced to be open. And the Holy Spirit's not going to, like, come in where he's not wanted. And so you just live out of this spirit of religion. And what you find is that I'm supposed to be this person. I've put on that I'm this person. I've led things because I'm this person. People have given me titles because I'm this person. I have to keep being this person, but I can't. The gap has gotten too big, and I don't know how long I can suppress the real me before it pops out. I don't know how long I can pretend to keep being this person before all of a sudden it gets really ugly and splatters all over the place. It happens all the time. There's a, a, a podcast episode that I think would be really beneficial for any of you. There's a podcast, and I think there's a picture of it, called We Are Vineyard. If you go to the Vineyard USA website, there's this podcast, We Are Vineyard. The one on the very left, Brenda Gatlin, that was this week. Um, the po whole podcast, I think, is beneficial, but that one especially. About 35 minutes into the podcast, they end up on this sort of tangent that really has very little to do with the overall podcast. I guess it has something to do with the overall podcast. But then they talk for about 15 minutes about what it, what it is to live out of a religious spirit. And Brenda actually talks about her experience of being with somebody who is actually filled with the spirit and living into legitimate Holy Spirit stuff. And she said, I'm completely offended by you, and yet I want what you have. 
And this is what happens when you have a religious spirit. You're constantly offended by the people who are living in the freedom of the real Holy Spirit. But you're so aware of the gap that you're living out of that you're just offended that somebody else would be free and be able to do to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it just, the cycle continues. It goes on and on and on. <clears throat> and ultimately, it'll crush our lives. Pretending to be somebody that we're not. One of the things I've discovered <clears throat> as I've tried to live into authentic following Jesus, what I've discovered is that People with religious spirits are offended by me on a regular basis. On a regular basis. And you know what the offense is most of the time? You're a little bit too raw. Like you're, a, a little, you're, you're not as good as I am. You don't put on as, like, this is real. You? Like, shouldn't you, like, clean it up a little bit and polish it a little bit and be a little? I'm trying to be exactly, like, my reality bar doesn't move. My reality bar is only in response to the Spirit of God. I'm not trying to be somebody I'm not. I get lied to sometimes, and I believe it, but my reality bar is exactly where it is. And so that means I am only as far as God has transformed me, and I'm not going to try to be something else, because here's the thing. In that space, it'll kill you. And people go, how come, how come the Holy Spirit does things through you? How come the Holy Spirit, I, I, you, you don't look cleaned up enough. You don't wear a shirt and a tie when you preach. You don't, like, I'm, I'm trying to wear a jacket, although it's too hot for a jacket now. Like, you don't, like, you don't look like I think you should look. And yet the Spirit of God does stuff through you, and that bothers me. That's, that's consistently the thing that happens with me. Not much I can do about that. But I would just say, if you find yourself wrestling with that with people, maybe the place to look is, have I allowed the gap to get big enough where I have a spirit of religion in the middle? And even as I say this stuff, I know that's a number of us. That there's a number of us, when I say about that little voice that's constantly saying, that's not who you are. If anybody finds out who you actually are, they would not like you. They will reject you. They will leave you. As I say that, some of you are like, I know that voice very, very clearly. It's a very accusing voice. It's not the voice of the Holy Spirit, just so you're aware. But I know that voice, and it's really, really close to me. And I've lived with that voice, and it gets louder the longer I live my life. Some of you are really close to that voice. And before I move on, I want to say some things. If it's not already happening to you, you're likely be, to begin to have this sense of feeling exposed. And maybe what will happen is inside of you, there's this like, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. I got to go. I got to go. Like this feeling of like, I didn't have to go to the bathroom, but now I have to go to the bathroom, right? Or if the, I, you know, if the I'm going to run, that the religious spirit is like stirring in you is not something it maybe sounds like this. I'm going to internally discredit everything you're saying so that I can feel okay. Right? So I'm saying this to you preemptively. If this is not already happening to you and you notice this in the next few minutes, I want you to be aware of it. Don't run. Persist. Okay? Because here's the thing. 
What I'm about to say is the key to your freedom. Plain and simple. What I'm about to say is the key to your freedom. You can be free of the bondage of a religious spirit. You can be free of that. John says that the way forward is the very thing Evan preached on a couple weeks ago. Look at verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John says that every last one of us struggles with sin. Everyone. All of us. We all struggle with it. And the way to freedom is to own what's true about you. To own it. To not make excuses, to not shift the blame, but to say, this is who I have been. It's the very thing that the religious spirit wants to keep hidden. It's, it's to stop putting on the mask and go, nope, this is really who I am. It's not who I want to be. Our, 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 one of our core values is we pursue wholeness with authenticity. We're on our way to wholeness. I know where we're headed. This is who I am now. This is what I struggle with now. And I'm not going to pretend like I don't. And I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to put cutesy language on it like I struggle with. No, don't say what it is. Own the thing that's true about you now. You don't pretend. Don't put it aside. Don't do anything other than bring it into the light. I'm going to take responsibility for the things that God has revealed to be true about me now. And as soon as you begin to do that, this gap gets smaller. The gap between who you pretend to be and what's real gets smaller. And the beautiful thing is, if you confess all of the things, as soon as you bring them into the light, they can be healed. You can be set free. And it's really, really, really easy to live a life where reality and what you pretend to be are the same thing. Real easy. I don't have to remember what's true and what I made up. I just say what's true. The way forward is not intuitive. It's to do the thing that we don't want to do, which is to expose the brokenness in our lives. And say, this is who I really am. For better or for worse, this is who I really am. Because what we fear about confession is that the result of our confession is going to be rejection and condemnation. That as soon as you say, this is who I am, I have been an alcoholic. I have been a people pleaser. I have been a porn addict. I have been all of these things. I care more about what people think than I care about what God thinks. As soon as you put that out into the open, God begins to heal it and change it. But God doesn't heal and change the pretend you. Does that mean I'm endorsing sinfulness? Like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Sin doesn't matter. As long as I just... Well, just tell God about my sinfulness and he'll forgive it and we just keep on going. That's not what I'm saying at all. The Christian life is not about sin. The Christian life is not about sin. The Christian life is about intimacy with God and fellowship with other people. The thing that we run into is sin. The problem that keeps us from the actual aim of Christian life is sin. 
we run into this stuff all the time and it causes broken relationship. The point is not sin. The aim of Christianity is not sin. It creates, minus three, the problem, which is I'm too sinful to actually be in real relationship with God and other people. See, the idea of confession is for the restoration of relationship. Confession is about the restoration of relationship. Confession is agreeing to what the other person already knows is true. If the way we pursue confession with God is like, I just throw my confession to him and he has to forgive me because of Jesus. And so, you know, now I'm free to do whatever I want and it doesn't really matter. We have not understood confession. We have stood over here. God is the table. Our sin is here. And we look at God and we say, can you put that one behind so I can keep doing my own thing? Can you just sort of overlook that and forgive that and let me go free from that so that I can be free to do my own thing. That's not confession. Confession is this. God is over there, and I walk over, and I say, you see that thing over there? He's like, yeah, I do. I agree with you. That's wrong. Can you bear the weight of the way that I wounded you so that we can be in relationship? That's confession. It's us walking to God and saying, I know that I don't belong in relationship with you. I know that I don't fit. I know that I'm too broken. But can we look at that and say that that's wrong and I don't want to be that anymore? Can we agree to that, please? And would you bear on yourself the pain and the wounding of it that we could be in relationship? Every time that you want to restore relationship, the offended party has to choose to own the pain of it, right? If you've ever been in a relationship or known a relationship where an affair happens, somebody cheats on someone else, the husband cheats on the wife, if they're ever going to restore relationship, what has to happen is the wife has to say, I'm going to choose to bear the weight of your sin that we could be in relationship. There's nothing the husband can ever do to fix that relationship. It has to be the wife that says, nope, I'm going to bear the weight and the wounding of this that we could be in relationship. The same is true about God. See, that's what confession does is it restores relationship. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Some of us stumble on that word, if. Like, oh, it's saying, that, it's saying Derek, the opposite of what you're saying. It's saying that Christians shouldn't sin, and if they act accidentally somewhere out in the middle of nowhere... Scholars say the better way to read that, if you want to get the understanding of what John is saying, is when someone sins, we have an atoning sacrifice. The assumption is that people are going to sin. That's the reason Jesus died, and God made that way for us. That God might bear on himself the wounding that we put and say, I'm going to pay for it this way. And the beautiful thing is, that we know, that we know, that we know, we have the assurance that we're forgiven. That's what makes the relationship. I want to finish this way. 
Last week I said to you that all Christian fellowship is centered on Jesus. That there's no Christian fellowship outside of that. This week we discover why. Christian fellowship is centered on Jesus because it's built on our common awareness of our sinfulness and our common need of a Savior. This whole thing, this whole fellowship is built on our common awareness that we're sinful and that we need a Savior. Look at verse 7. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. We collectively walk in the light and we're collectively aware. We have fellowship and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. That is the blood that is applied to us, cleans us. We actually take on the blood of one who spilled their blood for us to cleanse us from the sin that we have. There's this part of the liturgy of older church traditions that I I think we tend to forget in newer church tradition. You know, I think we sort of like have created our liturgy in a way that, that, you know, suits us well, but sometimes we lose really important things. When I was a kid, I went to a Lutheran church, and, you know, there's this uh, this staple every week. I was talking to Danny before this, and it was a staple in the Methodist church. It's a staple in a lot of churches. That we come in and we come collectively with the body of Christ, and one of the early things that we do is we confess our sin collectively. And what follows the corporate, like the collective confession of sin, is a guarantee of absolution or forgiveness. That every week we come, we confess, and we're forgiven. We confess, and we're forgiven. And what begins to happen then is, after that little, that, that little thing happens, comes communion. Right? We don't take communion until we've confessed, we've received our forgiveness and our purification, our absolution, and then we participate in communion. And a couple of things happen when you do this on a regular basis. First of all, you discover this rhythm that there's a God who's been wronged, and we're the ones who wronged him. And so we come alongside God and we say, that thing I did, that, that was a mess. I agree, that was a mess. We confess, we receive forgiveness, and out of forgiveness comes communion. This rhythm happens over and over and over. One of the things that you discover is you discover how sinfulness breaks the relationship. Sinfulness breaks relationship. Like that we can't just jump into communion before we've confessed and received forgiveness. That until forgiveness comes, communion's not really possible. Like we can drink the, the cup and we can eat the bread, but communion's not actually possible until we receive the forgiveness for the way that we've wronged the Lord. The second thing is we get reminded of the basis for Christian fellowship. You know the beautiful thing about corporate confession Collective confession, if you like that word better. One of the beautiful things about it is nobody's exempt. Nobody's exempt. If we're sitting here 
and we all collectively confess our sin to God, what it says is it doesn't matter how much money or how little money you have. It doesn't matter how affluent you are or not. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're an adult or you're a child. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or Asian or Latino. It doesn't matter because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We all confess collectively. But I think it makes a difference as we discover that our fellowship is actually only based on the fact that we mutually need a Savior. So here's what I want to do. This, uh, some of you who came out of, collect, of liturgical church traditions, this may grate on you for a second. Can you persist with me? What I want to do is I want to engage in that practice and then take communion together. Can we do that? The way it starts is that we make a space for silence where we can confess our sin to the Lord silently, specifically. And then we collectively read. And on the, on the heels of that comes forgiveness. And so we're going to just practice this. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. And so in this space, you can just silently, before the Lord, offer the sinfulness that you brought with you. Will you read this with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.